0: Like Chad said, we're going to take today to a, a little break from Matthew. We're going to jump back into Matthew next week. But today, we are talking about being happy in God. Something to look at for the course of this new year. George Mueller once said, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. As I sat and thought and talked with God a bit coming into the new years, it was leading into the new year, there was a lot of stuff on my mind and heart that I was like, okay, I want to be more about that. I want to be more focused on that. I'm sure we all had stuff like this. But my question is, if there was one main thing that I could focus on, what would it be? Is there one thing that we should make our primary Business. Well, I'd like to take a cue from my brother George Mueller here because this dude arguably did more good in the kingdom of God in his life than all of us combined will ever do in all of our lives combined. And so I'd like to take a cue from this great saint of old. And what brother George would say to us is that the great and primary business which we ought to attend to this year is to find our souls happy in God. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about being happy in God. So if you've got a Bible, you should have opened it up already to Psalm 16. In fact, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, can you just hold it up in the air and say word. Okay, look, that's the word of God. If you don't have a Bible with you, please bring one or a Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app or a Bible, uh, we will get you one. Probably the Bible, probably not an app or whatever. Bring that with you. We're in Psalm 16. The verse we're going to focus on is verse 11, which is the last verse. But we're going to read from verse 1 just to get some context. David writes here, Psalm 16, starting in verse 1. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good. Also translated, happiness. I have no happiness apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Therefore, my heart is glad, literally very happy. And my soul, my whole being, I'm sorry, rejoices. And my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm just going to read that last verse again because that's our verse we're going to camp out on today. You make known to me the path of life In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the water that is your word. We are thankful for the bread that is your word. Today we ask that you would give us grace to taste of the truth of your word and to taste of you and see that you are good. Lord, there's a lot of places where we could try to satisfy our taste buds, spiritually speaking. And so we need your help to come to you and to drink and to eat of you and your truth I ask that you would open our hearts to receive and our minds to understand the things that you want to say to us pray that my words man my words are just dumb they're just empty unless you come and fill them so i give you my mouth and my mind I ask that you would work through me to speak to us we want to hear everything that you have for us this morning in Jesus name amen joy David said, in the presence of God, is the fullness of joy. Simple definition of joy is this. Joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. I don't know about you, but I, I like being happy. In fact, I love being happy. And I think that my soul likes to be happy too. Because as long as I can remember, as far back as I can remember, I've always been a glass is half full kind of a guy. Right? I've always been able to find the silver lining in almost any situation. And I think it's a way for my soul to try to be happy. After all, who doesn't want to be happy? Nobody wants to experience anger, frustration, or sadness. If we had a choice, we would all choose happiness. Joy is the feeling of great pleasure and happiness. And there is So much in this life that can make us happy. And God has designed us to find some joy in things in this world. But David says here, yeah, but there's one thing. There's one thing that makes you most happy. There's one thing that makes the soul most full of joy. He says that in your presence, there is the fullness of joy. So I want to be happy. David says, how happy do you want to be? Because the fullness of joy, the most happiness is found in the presence of God. Now listen, this is scripture, right? Like this is truth. We come to God's word. It's infallible. It's like, wow, God said this. This is truth. And for those of us who have experienced the presence of God, we affirm what the Bible already says to be true. Like, yeah, there is no greater joy that I've ever found than in the presence of God. However, it is one thing to recognize something as truth and to maybe even have some uh, experience of it from time to time, but quite another to live in this place continually. And that's why George Mueller doesn't just say that our souls can be or are happy in God. He says making our souls happy in God is something we must attend to. In other words, being happy in God isn't something that is done to us. It requires some participating in it. it requires some seeking and, honestly, often some, some work, some fighting for it. And whether we realize it or not, we actually all know this. We, we actually all know this to be true. Because left to our own evi- own devices, we will, all of us, look everywhere and anywhere else first to make our souls happy. Unless we are continually attending to this business of making our souls happy in God... We will naturally try to find happiness in other lesser things. Things that will never actually make our souls happy. And yes, we might get glimpses of of deep joy from those things. But that's all they'll ever be. They'll just be the glimpse. They won't be the real thing. I don't know about you, but I like the real thing. I don't like imitation Nikes from Thailand. I I want real Nikes from China. (laughs) I don't... I don't want, like, some, like, genetically engineered beef. I want grass-fed organic beef. I want the real thing. I don't want some sexy picture of a woman on the Internet. I want my wife. I want the real thing. And I don't want some second-rate version of joy. I want to have the real thing. I want my soul to be happy for real. And so I will daily, should, daily attend to making my soul truly happy really happy. Now, I know that that might sound a little bit self-centered, right? So let me explain what I'm saying because the aim of every Christian shouldn't be like, dude, I just want to make myself happy, right? Like it might sound a little bit weird and like unbiblical or something. The, the, The aim of every Christian should be to bring glory to God, right? Well, I would like to join in with Brother George Mueller and John Piper, who we'll talk about in a minute and say that when I'm talking about being happy in God, what they would say is that there is actually nothing better I could do than to work after, seek after my happiness. In fact, our joy and God's glory actually go hand in hand. Specifically, when we are talking about finding ourselves working, attaining, uh, attending to making our souls happy in God. John Piper, one of the most respected theologians and Authors, pastors, preachers of our time says this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that's heavy, for, especially for us who haven't read this before. Let me say it again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You want to bring glory to God, Christian? Be completely satisfied in him. This brings God glory. If you've got a Bible, turn over like eight books or whatever to the right to Philippians chapter 1 or swipe over Philippians chapter 1 for a minute. When you get it, say, got it. Philippians chapter 1. When you get it, say, got it. All right, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of a passage for a second, all right? We're going to, like, we need to put our, like, if you went to college, like a college hat on, uh, like a Bible study kind of, like, eyes on, okay? Like your exegesis, exegetical eyes. We're going to look into this passage, and we're going to dig out some good gold here that we need to see. Let me say this again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let's see this broken down here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes, okay, put on your thinking caps. It is according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain." says in verse 20, right there, we just read it, my earnest expectation is that Christ will be magnified. In other words, I expect Christ to be magnified. Christ magnified, God glorified. We can kind of use them interchangeably here. I expect Christ to be magnified. Why? Well, there's this all-important word at the beginning of verse 21, when it says, for. For means that. Paul is about to ground his previous statement in what he is about to say. He's about to ground the statement of, I am expectant that Christ will be magnified. And it's grounded in, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I expect Christ to be magnified and the expectation is grounded in verse 21 when it says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. So how does this work? Where is the the logic then? How is it that Christ is magnified or God is most glorified in my being satisfied in him? Well, it starts to make a little bit more sense when we drop out the living pair and keep the dying pair. There's this living pair. There's like the when I live in my life and then there's this dying pair. There's like the when I die and the dying. So let's just take out the living pair just for a second so we can see a little bit more clearly here. Like that, it says it will be up on the screen so you can read it. It is according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now Christ will be magnified in my body by my death. For to me, to die is gain. Condensed, it reads like this. It'll be up on the screen. Christ will be magnified in my body by my death. For to me, to die is gain. In other words, Paul is saying Christ will, will be magnified in my death. And the reason I know that Christ will be magnified in my death is based on the fact that dying is my gain. Dying is gain. That's why the word for is so important here, right? Christ will be magnified in my death. Why? Because for me to die is gain. Simply put, if my dying is gain, Christ is magnified. If my dying is gain, if my... Dying is gain for me, then God is glorified. And what makes it gain for Paul to die? Well, we find the answer two verses later in verse 23 when he says, To depart and be with Christ is far better. In other words, the reason that Paul says to die is gain is that in his dying, he gets Christ. It says, if I die and go to be with Christ, that, being with Christ, is far better. That is my gain. Getting Christ is far better than living. Simply put, if Christ is the gain of my dying, then Christ is magnified. And what does it mean that Christ is my gain in my dying? It means what it says in verse 23, that Christ is better. In other words, Christ is better than anything I could have gotten from life. Christ is better than and more satisfying than anything that life ever could have to offer. Simply put, when Christ is more satisfying to me than anything in life, Christ is magnified. When Christ is more satisfying to me than anything in life, Christ is magnified. You want to magnify Christ? You want to bring glory to God in and through your life? Be satisfied in him more than anything In this life. Once again that quote from John Piper. God is most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied. In him. So yeah. I want my soul to be happy. Yeah I want to be like really happy. I want to experience a lot of joy. And yeah. I want to bring glory to God. So then. Let me make it my aim. To make my soul happy in God. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. But like my wife and I said to each other out loud the other day when we were talking about this, yeah, but how? Yeah, but how? How do we make our souls happy in God? Well, I what I can gather is two words: repent and replace. How do we make our souls happy in God? We repent and we replace. We repent. Now, I'm not talking about confessing your sin, although you might need to do that. I'm not talking about coming, you know, forward at some altar call or something, although you might need to do that. What I'm talking about is changing directions. If you don't know, the word repent is this old nautical term. It's something they'd use out on the seas. Sailor would use, sailors would use it out on the seas. It just meant to take it, to do an about face, to turn and go in the other direction. They'd see an iceberg or whatever, and like, oh, repent. they turn around and head in a better direction. Direction. So when I say repent, how do we make our souls happy in God? We repent. It means to turn away from lesser things and turn toward the supreme thing. But first, we've got to recognize that we're even heading in the wrong direction in the first place, right? Some of us have tricked ourselves into believing that we're, at, we're happy in God. Our souls are happy in God. We're really, we're just kind of happy with his stuff. But we must not confuse worldly contentment with spiritual satisfaction. Let me say that again. We must not confuse worldly contentment with spiritual satisfaction. I love what Greg Moore says about this. It's so true. He says, we delightfully receive the new acquisition, a job, a relationship, a success. And we assume, often wrongly, that our joy automatically finds its source in God. It often sounds like this, I feel God's presence in new ways and I'm wonderfully delighted in him during this season. In my experience, both by saying and hearing it, what we mean by this is that we were blessed with a new promotion or that we got back together with our ex. But the wolf is unmasked when we ask, what about your communion with God has been sweet in this season? There's no doubting that your wallet is full, a lovely wife awaits you at home and your anxieties over work have fled. But what of Jesus Christ? Ask yourself, is the Son of my affections for Jesus rising or setting? Must I have more of Christ, or will other delights fill me? I think all of us can relate to that, right? So we first got to recognize that or rather, we first gotta recognize where our our source of joy is in the first place. And that means that we've got to take inventory and acknowledge where we've been trying to find our joy. We need to take stock of where our hearts are looking to try to find our joy. I know where I have a proclivity to do that. But it's going to be different for you. So where is it? Where, where is your heart like naturally just kind of like prone to find happiness in? You got to answer that question. You got to take stock of that. And then once we identify those things— We just choose to turn from them. Now, that doesn't mean that we like throw away everything except Christ. We don't just abandon all of our relationships or stop all the the work that we're doing and just like take up some weird like isolated lifestyle. What it means is that we recognize where those things, places should be. We recognize their rightful place and then we put them in their rightful place. They were not intended to be supreme, and so we should not allow them to be supreme, and so we put them in the rightful place. When we allow them to be supreme, guys, we end up beginning to practice the sin of idolatry, is what we end up doing. We should not let anything have its supreme place. When we do, when we give lesser things to a supreme place in our hearts, we practice the sin of idolatry. My kids go to this Uh, private school, it's really little, it's awesome, it's like, they wear uniforms, and uh, they do these things, I don't know what they're called, It's it's called Beacon Hill Classical Academy is the name of the school, and so it's some fancy classical word probably for this, but they do these like call and response things, that's what we call it in the music industry, right, a call and response, where somebody calls out something, a teacher calls out something, and then the kids respond back with something else, right, like they have this one where the teacher says, leave it, And the kids say, better than you found it. That's good, right? Like your kid borrows the car or something. Like, yo, dude, you didn't bring it back with any gas. And you say to them, leave it. And they're like, better than you found it. Right? Next time they'll remember to bring it back with some gas. Or this one where the the, the teacher, the caller, says, "Uh, obey. And then the kids say, right away, all the way. That's a good one right there. I use that one at home all the time, right? The kids respond. They're not doing the thing. Solomon, Kingston, whatever, Selah, obey, right away, all the way, right? They do this call and response thing. But one that I love is the teacher says, idols always, we'll put it up on the screen, idols always. And the kids say, break the hearts of their worshipers. That's good, right? They're, even, they're like seven. They don't even know what it means yet. But they will. But we know what it means, so we're going to do it, Okay. I'm going to be the teacher. You guys can be the students. Look at it for a second because we're going to take it off. There's no cheating. Idols always break the hearts of the worshipers. So I'm going to say idols always. And you, like you mean it, are going to say break the hearts of the worshipers. Okay, take it off. Okay, I'm going to say idols always. You say break the hearts of the worshipers. Say it like we mean it. When the kids do it, they do it with everything they got. I'm going to say idols always. You respond with break the hearts of the worshipers. Idols always. That's right, church. Idols do always break the hearts of their worshipers. Idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. So listen, first we identify what those things are, where that idolatry is beginning to take place. And we repent and we put those things in their rightful place. Now if they're like sinful things that just don't have a place, you get rid of them. But for most of us, it's just like fine, good, even godly stuff. But it's just not God it's not supreme. Maybe it's some good Christian work even. But that is not supreme. Only God is supreme. And so we take those things, wherever we're finding happiness, and we put them in their rightful place. Because those things were never intended to receive our worship. Only one was ever intended to receive our worship and affections, namely Jesus. Because idols always... <laughs> That's right. I'm going to do it every Sunday... Guys, we were created to find the fullness of joy in God and God alone. And so when we have realized that we've been looking somewhere else, we simply just set our compasses to the right direction, the, the, the true destination of joy, and begin heading that way. God's gifts are awesome and plentiful, but the key is to find joy in God not in his gifts, although they may be numerous and awesome. I love this quote. It says, When we live seeking satisfaction from the things of the world, we live as if heaven didn't exist and God didn't usher in his kingdom through Jesus. The things of this world only have value in the giver of all good things. So our possessions, relationships, and work only have value here because they are a shadow of what is to come when all things are made new. Having vision for eternity should lead us to create boundaries around everything in this life. It should lead us to a lifestyle of surrender that our hearts might never become tied to that which is fleeting and can never fully satisfy. It should lead us to a lifestyle of fully enjoying the things God has given us, all the while knowing the things of this life are merely a shadow in comparison to what is to come. Church's gifts are... Numerous and awesome, but we must not trade communion with God for them. Enjoy his gifts, yes, but don't trade them for him. Colossians 3 says that Christ himself is our life. And as our psalm today tells us, Lasting joy is not found in God's stuff, but in God. David knew something about this I think we could learn some stuff from. David knew that all the wealth the whole world could offer, and he would have a lot, would never compare with the treasure that was God. David knew who his inheritance was. Not what his inheritance was. He knew who his inheritance was. Listen, back in Psalm 16, it'll be up on the screen as well. Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, the Lord is my portion and my cup? You is talking to God. Hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David says, "The Lord is my portion." This word "portion" in the Hebrew is this, this word "manoth." It's the same word that comes uh, comes from the word "manna," right? As in that heavenly food that God sent down to the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness and starving and terrified. And David says, "You, O oh God, are my manna. You are my manna." Jesus would later say of himself in John 6:35, "I am the bread. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty." Listen, David knew the story of his ancestors 400 years earlier, wandering in the wilderness, being starving and terrified. And that God sent down this this meal from heaven and that they called it manna. And David says here, the Lord is my manna. The Lord is my portion. You, O God, are my reward. You are my inheritance. The lines that he's talking about in verse 6, speak of the lines of his lot. It says, you hold my lot He's talking about property lines. He's talking about property lines. He's talking about his inheritance. Listen, we live in California. We should get this. Everybody in California just wants a little bit of land. Just like give me a little bit. And very, very few of us ever get it. Right. Have you ever gone on to like Zillow or some website like that and gone on the map and clicked on a little button that says lot lines? And it shows you the lot lines around every single address on that part of the map? I have. And I've zoomed into my house, and it is the most pathetic little thing you've ever seen. It's like a herd of cattle, like at a trough. You know what I mean? It's just like, really? As it pertains to my real estate, my lines have not fallen for me in pleasant places. But David is not talking about real estate. He's not talking about a home built on dirt. He's talking about an eternal home that is God. He says, you are. Oh, God, are my eternal home. You are my inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have, at the end of verse 6, a beautiful inheritance. Zillow draws a line around God and says, David, that's where you live. That's your address. This is your inheritance. This is your inheritance, Lord. Help me. Help me to see my inheritance in you is so much infinitely greater than anything this world could ever offer. Now listen, for some of us, it's not that there's too much stuff that's distracting us from finding our souls happy in God. It's that you're just like overwhelmed with grief and sadness. You're like, dude, there's just too much sorrow in my life. What do I do? Well, it's the same thing, right? The key is to find joy in God. When there are a thousand reasons to groan. The Hebrew church experienced some hard times. They had some things to complain and be sad about too. But look at what the writer of Hebrews tells them and says about them. In Hebrews chapter 10, he writes to them. Guys, I put that in there. Guys, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly ex- exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in pr- prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. The heart who is continually finding itself happy in God and attending to that great work of finding your soul happy in God can say with these folks, you know what? There are plenty of reasons to groan and complain. There are plenty of losses of possessions, plenty of things to be sad about, but our joy is not in those possessions or in this life. Our joy is in a better treasure. Our joy is in God, who it says here is the abiding possession, the abiding treasure. Abiding, you know what that means? It means like it's not going to move, not going to go away. It can't be stolen or taken from you or destroyed. So the first thing we do to make our souls happy in God is we repent and we replace, right? We Acknowledge what it is, we repent, turn around, we replace. We replace those things we're trying to make our souls happy in, we replace them with God. As we are repenting toward God, we are replacing the stuff with the real thing, the real source, the real place where joy is found. Where? David says it, in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. He says that the soul is happiest in the presence of God. What is the key element to making our souls happy in God? It is the presence of God. The key to being happy in God is living in God's presence. Now this is very interesting. Because if you have ever read the Old Testament, fullness of joy is not usually the phrase that you would use to describe the presence of God. Okay? Like the, the, the presence of God in the Old Testament is kind of freaky. Like terrifying, scary, shaking your boots kind of a thing. I mean, one time a year, one dude, the high priest, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was residing there between the cherubim on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And the dude was terrified. He was terrified. And David knew something of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember in 1 Chronicles 13-15 through 15, when he takes a bunch of his dudes to go back and take back the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim in Judah and bring it back to Israel. And David didn't follow the protocol and bring the priests over there to carry the Ark like he should have. And so he just had his dudes carrying it. And one of his dudes, Uzzah, tried to reach out and... Touch the ark, and you know what happened to this dude? He died. And so it says of David, rightly so, 1 Chronicles 13:12. David was afraid of God that day. Dang right, he was afraid of God that day. So, what the heck is David talking about when he says in the presence of God is fullness of joy? Like Yeah, I mean, he he probably had some rad relationship with God. That's what it seems from Scripture. But, like, what does he know about the the presence of God? The Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God dwelt. This is pre-Jesus, people. He says the presence of God is fullness of joy. What is he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about the resurrection. Look at verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read it and then put it up on the screen in the New Living so it's a little easier to make the point here. He says to God for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave you will show me the way of life granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever david was talking about the resurrection and he wasn't talking about himself because he would see the grave he would rot in the grave he was prophetically talking about the resurrection of the messiah who would to come would be to come jesus would not stay among the dead or rot in the grave. Jesus would live with God forever in his presence where he would experience the fullness of joy. But here's what we know, guys. We know that for us who have trusted in Jesus, we also have this hope of the resurrection of the dead and living with God forever in his presence where there is fullness of joy. For David, all he knew was this like, terrifying Presence of God, like scary, otherness, don't touch it or you might die kind of a thing. And then he somehow had this supernatural uh, revelation of the Messiah coming one day who would be risen and live with God forever. where He would experience the fullness of joy. And then he may have, may have had a little tiny inkling, although it's doubtful, that he too would maybe rise with the Messiah would he'd be in the presence of God experiencing the fullness of joy forever. But that was it. The only thing that anyone living under the old covenant of the law had at most was maybe this possible, hopeful, joyful eternity in God's presence. But that is not who we are. That is not where we live. We are not living under the old covenant of the law, guys. We are living under the new covenant of grace, Hebrews 10 says that Jesus inaugurated, that means instituted, made active a new and living way for us. And in this new way, in this new covenant, the presence of God is quite a different thing. It's not just some future thing that comes with the resurrection, and it's definitely not something to be feared. It is a place that is here and now, and it is a good place. And you and me, we are invited into this place. Matthew 27, it says that at the very moment that Jesus died on the cross, that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil, that curtain outside of the Holy of Holies that the high priest once a year had to walk through to get in the presence of God, that curtain that separated a holy God from an unholy humanity, it was torn. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence now to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, let us draw near with a sincere heart of full assurance of faith. He says we can enter into the holy place. Guys, the holy place. This is the place in the temple that housed the Ark of the Covenant, which where the presence of God dwelt. That place we were just talking about that was absolutely terrifying. Jesus flips the whole thing upside down with his death and says, this holy place, this terrifying holy place, all of a sudden becomes this place now that we enter into not with fear, but with confidence, with boldness, with full assurance. The veil of the the, went into the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom so we could enter in boldly. In other words, there's nothing to be afraid of here. God with a smile on his face says, Come on in. Come on in. It says there in Matthew 27 that the veil was torn. It was ripped. Guys, it doesn't say that it was like gently cut with a really sharp knife from top to bottom or that it was meticulously unstitched as to preserve it in case we need it for later. It was torn. You know what that says to me? It says two things to me. First of all, it says that God is passionate about this whole come into my presence thing. Listen, he tore it. This was not some timid, like, I mean, I don't know if you guys want. Like, maybe you could come in. Like, I'm, I'm here, and Jesus died and everything. So, like, let me just make a little hole in the curtain, and you could sneak through sometimes. Like, this was like a, hey! Hey! What? Come on! Wait, what are you doing out there? Woo! Come on! Come on in! Right? This was God, like, Whoosh! sorry, I spit everywhere. This was God tearing everything, like, yelling to humanity. The earth shook. People were raising from the dead. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. The whole place goes dark. There's earthquakes everywhere. People are dead are walking around. And then the veil in the temple is torn. Like how much louder does God have to yell? He yelled and he said, come on in. Come on in. We see throughout the entire Old Testament that God wanted to dwell among his people. When the command for the temple to be built was given, it was was given to be built among the people. When God told Moses where to erect the tabernacle, he said, erect it in the midst of the congregation. God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people, but because of his holiness and our unrighteousness, we could never dwell in his presence. you get that? He wanted to be in our midst, but because of our unrighteousness, we could never be in his presence presence but jesus came to make a way for us to come in not close not around not in good proximity but in god did everything necessary to make sure that there was nothing left preventing us from coming in to his presence when jesus cried out with a loud voice on the cross it is finished and then gave up his life there was nothing left to do and so god reached down from heaven And tore the curtain from top to bottom. God is passionate about removing everything that might prevent us from coming and living in his presence. And not only is God passionate about it, when he does it, he does it completely. It is thorough. All the work was done. It was all finished. Guys, there's no more hoops that we have to jump through. There's no ritual you need to perform, no list of rules you need to keep. If you have put your trust in Jesus, then you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then God says, come on in. Come on in with a smile on his face. Come on in, he says. You don't have to ask. You don't have to brush off your shoes or do something. Just come on in. I did it all. I already did it. The meal is made, the bed is made. You don't have to do anything. Just come on in. The second thing that the veil being torn says to me is we don't need this thing anymore. We don't need this. You don't tear something unless you're done with it. Right? God was saying, that's old news. We're never going to need this again. The veil being torn says from God to us, hey, you will never need to go through any veil of religion or high priest ever again. Jesus did it all. Jesus is the veil and the priest. There are no more curtains. Jesus is the curtain by which we entered through. There's no more doors to go through. Jesus is the door. He is the, the sheep gate that the sheep enter through. He is the path. And the way to the heavenly father. To his presence where there is fullness of joy. God, under the new covenant of grace, now says to us, guys, come into my presence. Here, you're going to find peace. You're going to find rest for your souls. You're going to find strength. You're going to find healing. You're going to find safety. You're going to find security. You're going to find grace and mercy for your time of need. And you are going to find joy. And you are going to find joy. And you will find joy. You want to make your soul happy in God? Enter boldly into his presence. Get into his presence. How do you do that? Well, I know how I do that, but... Everybody's a little bit different. If you don't know what that means, how, how to do that, I would love to help you sometime, not right now, but call me, email me, we'll figure out a time, we'll get together. Listen, guys, this is the first week of 2018. And I don't know about you, but I, I want God to be glorified in my life. I want God to be glorified in my life this year. And there's a lot of things that we see in scripture that will bring glory to God that we could do. But before I do any of them, I must attend to this great work of making my soul happy in God. There's a lot of things I want to be about good things, godly things this year. And I'm not suggesting that you take up some monk lifestyle where you just seclude yourself, making yourself happy in God only and being totally like uh, unaware of everything going on around you and God maybe wanting to involve you in some work around you. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is that we make this our primary goal. And then let everything else flow from that place. See, when my soul is happy in God, I'm actually a lot better at all of it. And I'm actually a lot better for it. When my soul is happy in God, I'm less anxious. I'm less stressed out. I'm less overwhelmed. I'm less insecure. And I am more at peace. I am more confident in who God's made me to be. I am more content in who I am. And when I begin to live from this place of having my soul happy in God, and see through that lens. And all of a sudden, you know what? I'm a better dad. All of a sudden, I'm a better husband. All of a sudden, I'm a more faithful leader. I'm better at running my business. I'm a better neighbor when I live from that place. And if you don't believe me, which is totally fine, then believe George Mueller, If anyone had a life of fruitfulness and effectiveness in the kingdom and for the glory of God, it was George Mueller. This dude cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. 10,000. I can't imagine caring for 10 of my own kids. Much less 10 orphans. Much less 10,000 orphans. This dude started 117 schools that provided Christian education to over 120,000 kids. Many of them orphans. I think he knew a thing or two about getting stuff done in the kingdom of God. And I'm sure Brother George also had some New Year's resolutions or aspirations or ambitions from time to time. But listen to what he says here. I'm going to read the big quote of the one little sentence we read at the beginning. And we'll end with this. George Mueller says, According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things... See to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my... Firm and settled condition for the last five and thirty-five years. That's thirty, thirty-five, well, five and thirty, thirty-five, thirty-five years. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship. With God himself. So guys, here's what I'd love to do. As like, if we were family, here's what I would love to do this year. I would love to, as often as we can, just wake up in the morning and just take stock. Just like say to yourself, self, where are you being happy? Soul, what are you finding your happiness in right now? And just look, just look for it. Just take a little self-assessment. And if it's something other than God, then just take a minute to repent and turn toward him and say, okay, God, I'm going to take a few minutes here to enter into your presence where there is the fullness of joy and then allow my life to live from that place. Lord, this is hard stuff. I am so easily distracted. The shiny lights of life are distracting to me, Lord. The truth is, you're better. And Lord, we need your grace to see that. Our souls were created to be happy in you. Lord, we need your help. So we ask this year, It would help us to attend to primarily, first, making our souls happy in God.